Hello, this is Jacob Charles, and I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Firearms Law at Duke Law School. Thanks for joining us for this special edition of the Duke Law Podcast, where we'll be discussing the Supreme Court's recent decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association against Bruin. Joining us for the conversation today is Faculty Co-Director Daryl Miller. Hi. Faculty Co-Director Joseph Bloker. Thanks for having me. And the incoming Director of the Center for Firearms Law, Andrew Willinger. Hi, it's great to be here. So I'll quickly set up a background of the case and then turn it over to Andrew to lead the conversation. In this case, uh, two New York State residents and a state gun rights organization challenged New York's requirement that an applicant show proper cause in order to get an unrestricted concealed carry license. The Supreme Court ruled that New York statute is unconstitutional, and it had two key rulings on that statute. First, that states cannot have these kind of discretionary licensing schemes that require an individual to show they have a need different from the general community. And second, and even more significantly perhaps, is the court's ruling that lower courts should assess Second Amendment challenges based solely on a test that looks to history, tradition, and analogy, as opposed to the standard conventional framework of looking to first whether conduct is protected by the Second Amendment and then applying some form of means and scrutiny. We'll discuss all that in more detail, and I'll turn it over to Andrew to lead the conversation. Thanks so much, Jake. So I thought we could maybe start today with some kind of high-level questions about takeaways from the court's opinion in Bruin and try to situate it within the, the broader context of maybe some other cases that we've recently seen the court decide. You know, the, the, the court in Bruin, Justice Thomas's opinion, rejects an approach that combined historical inquiry with means and scrutiny and was endorsed by every courts of appeal to consider that question in the you know intervening period between Heller and McDonald and Bruin. So maybe starting off uh, with you, Joseph, you know how, how unusual is it for the court to reject an approach that had received such unanimous acceptance? And is it possible to understate the significance of, of what the court decided in Bruin? Yeah, I'll answer that second question first. I think it, it's, it'd be really hard to overstate it. Uh, this is an enormous change in the methodology that courts are supposed to apply in uh, Second Amendment cases going forward. And uh, as you and Jake both said, I mean, this two-part framework that the federal courts of appeal had been applying, they'd done so in 1,500 or more cases in the 14 years since Heller was decided. That's a lot of case law. And I think now we're going to be faced with questions about, well, which of those decisions even survive um, post-Bruin? Post um, you know, as, as Jake pointed out, the first part of the two-part framework that the courts had been applying is this sort of historical threshold test of whether a person or an arm or an activity comes within the Second Amendment. Well, that the Supreme Court in Bruin seems to still approve. So maybe those opinions, uh, I would argue, are still good law. But the other ones, the the reasoning and methodology the court's called into question here, it's a it's a huge, huge change. And it's difficult to think of a, another example that, that looks like this. Right. And and I guess one thing that's that that I also thought might be interesting to discuss is, you know, we, we see uh, the day after Bruin is it comes down, we see the Dobbs decision where it's a it's a five three one decision, and Chief Justice Roberts uh, purports to take sort of a middle ground, a road of of self restraint, not uh, not voting to uh, overrule Roe and Casey entirely, but rather to simply uphold uh, the Mississippi law in that case. You know, I think you can imagine a world where in Bruin something similar happens, right? Where you know some uh, some of the justices, or maybe even a majority of the justices, say. Um, we're going to uh, continue to use this this two part test that that includes means and scrutiny in addition to history, 
Um, but we're still going to strike down the the New York law after after going through that analysis because we think it's you know it, it burdens uh, protected conduct without you know without being substantially related to an important government interest. Daryl, maybe turning this over to you, was it surprising that we saw uh, zero justices take that approach here? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised, although I think there was some indication by the leak of the Dobbs opinion just how aggressive. Uh, the conservative majority was going to be uh, on some of these uh, hot button topics. Um, so initially, I thought uh, there might be some votes uh, for uh, retaining the two part framework. And um, you know, full disclosure, uh, both Joseph and I filed a an amicus brief on behalf of neither party, actually encouraging the court. Uh, not to uh, dispense with the two-part framework. But look, this is not uh, the court of the 90s. This is not the court of uh, Chief Justice John Roberts. More and more, it's a court of uh, Clarence Thomas and uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Justice Gorsuch. Uh, They really have deep-seated beliefs about how constitutional law is supposed to operate, and this is a manifestation of that. Thanks so much. Um, and, 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 you know, one of the things that uh, Justice Thomas, uh, who, who writes uh, the, the plurality opinion here, and, and Justice Breyer, who, who writes the dissent, disagree about strenuously is the interpretation of Heller. You know, there, there's uh, Justice Thomas's opinion really sets itself up as, as being uh, deeply rooted in what Heller says, right? You need to look to history and tradition to construe the, the scope of the Second Amendment and to evaluate uh, gun regulations. But of course, the Heller opinion does then go on to say, after after looking through the history and and taking sort of a a long road through you know English and and early American history, it says, well, the gun regulation at issue, which was a D.C. ban on handguns in the home, you know, would have failed any uh, of the forms of means and scrutiny that courts traditionally apply. And so there, there's disagreement between um, Justice Thomas. And Justice Breyer about what that statement was, right? Was it simply kind of a throwaway line that was a, you know, I, I think uh, Justice Thomas says it was gilding the lily, um, or did it actually mean that uh, at the time the the Heller justices thought that the court should go on to do means and scrutiny, and that they're simply uh, dissatisfied with how courts have done that in the intervening period? Yeah, it's an interesting thought. Actually, I, I tag in Jake here too. Who I know has been thinking about this this issue. I mean. I think this goes back a little bit to the question of what's going to happen to all of the post-Heller cases that were decided uh, at the circuit level employing some form of means and scrutiny. Um, you know, those courts uh, took this dicta to be this alleged dicta to be part of the holding, and the fact that they've now incorporated them in circuit precedent makes them certainly precedent within the circuits. Many circuits have a rule, after all, that Supreme Court dicta should be treated like holdings. Um, so how much of that gets upended going forward is a really tough question. I think it's also just hard to know, and I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about this more, the degree to which this historical test can be applied without doing some form of that that kind of means and tailoring. Yeah, and I'll just jump in here and say, it seems to me that from the Heller decision, there are at least three indicia that would suggest it was not imposing the historical test. There's this statement about uh, the DC regulation will fail under any of the standards that we'd apply to meet to uh, enumerated rights. There's the statement that it's rejecting Justice Breyer's 
proportionality analysis specifically because it was not one of the forms of scrutiny that courts have typically used for constitutional rights. Not that it was an improper form of means in scrutiny, but that it was not a form that courts have used. And then there was the court saying itself that it was not setting out a standard for all future cases and excusing that on the grounds that it was the first case to establish a constitutional right to um, have a, a handgun in the home and not settling all future questions. Um, I think one of the things about Bruin that's significant is that Justice Thomas does exactly what Justice Kavanaugh did when Justice Kavanaugh, um, as a judge on the D.C. Court of Appeals, first advocated for a text history and tradition approach, which is the justification for it is not that the Second Amendment right is somehow different from other rights and it demands a historical test. It's not that constitutional theory requires uh, individual rights provisions to be interpreted just using historical analogies. Both Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Thomas justify the test as based on Heller. Uh, it's purely Heller said we should do this. We have to do this. One thing that I, I think is worth uh, remarking on, which is, and what we discussed in uh, in our brief, um, is it doesn't matter what kind of test that a court comes up with. There's two things that every court has to do in sort of deciding constitutional rights issues. A, decide, is this even a constitutional issue? And B, you know, what level of protection does the Constitution provide to this particular type of activity? It doesn't matter whether you use a text history and tradition only approach. It doesn't matter if you use a sort of scrutiny approach. Those two kinds of functions are going to always be present in any particular constitutional challenge. And I think what we'll see as the cases develop in the lower courts is that the reality that lower courts have to engage in this two-part process is just going to be interpreted in a sort of text history and tradition analogy approach, although the underlying focus, the underlying purpose of why the court's doing it is going to remain the same. If I could just add one more thought on that, when Daryl refers to a two-part approach, Jake has a fantastic um, post on our blog, Second Thoughts, explaining this in some more detail. But the Bruin decision itself, while rejecting this two-part framework employed in the lower federal courts, actually does have kind of a two-step of its own, a two-part of its own. The second part, in some respects, is the historical test, the historical analogy. But what triggers that, according to Justice Thomas, is the fact that the quote-unquote plain text of the Second Amendment covers the challenge in this case. So in other words, to make it then into two parts, if the plain text of the Second Amendment is implicated by a gun regulation, then the burden shifts to the government to put on all this historical evidence. You know How much historical evidence would have satisfied the court remains an open question, as Daryl was just saying. But that first part, the plain text part, is really, really important and actually could, I think, open the, the door to a, to a much narrower reading of this case, which is to say, this is a case, and this is how it was litigated, how we've been looking at this case coming down the, the road for, for years and years, um, which is this is a case about the right to bear arms outside the home. And the you know that is a word in the 27 words of the Second Amendment. It says bear. And a lot of, a lot of people have been arguing for years and years, look, bear means carry. That's plain text. And that's all this case really is. And if that's true, well, that means this is kind of a ticket good for one ride only uh, in terms of putting this huge historical burden on the government because a lot of the other litigated issues working their way up, like a prohibition on high-capacity magazines, let's say, I think it's much harder to say that high-capacity magazines 
fall within the plain text of arms, right? They might be arms, but plain text is a little bit of a stretch. Likewise for domestic abusers, undocumented immigrants, like other groups that are disarmed under current federal law, they might be among the people, but that's a, it requires a little more than just plain text. And so it could be that um, that that this case gets limited to the issue that all along we thought was going to be the the central central focus. I'll just say one more thing on that, and it, and that's at that first step of plain meaning, it's entirely unclear from the opinion who bears the burden at that step. Does a challenger who comes into court have to bear some burden to say my conduct is within the scope of the plain text to then shift the burden to the government? Or does the government bear the burden of somehow showing that whatever protected or whatever purported protected conduct is not actually within the plain text and then also bear the burden at step two? Uh, the decision doesn't say who bears that burden at step one. And so I think maybe it makes sense at this point to to move on from that that, that first step, which you talked about and, and we, we talk about on, in, the, in the blog post, which which basically asks whether the conduct is within the scope of the of the Second Amendment generally as construed through historical sources to the second step of the Bruin framework, which is whether the regulation at issue is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Um, and on that step, you know, I think it's clear from the Bruin opinion that the, the government bears the burden of, of putting forward evidence of a historical tradition of analogous regulation. And so I wanted to, to just ask, what are your thoughts about the the concerns, and, and these are expressed, I think, pretty poignantly in Justice Breyer's dissent, that this aspect of the test might actually expand rather than constrict judicial discretion um, when lower courts start to apply the framework, right? Justice Breyer says that um, judges may simply pick the desired outcome and then cloak that outcome in the language of history. And so kind of a, a two-part question. One, do you share those concerns? And two, what are some ways in which we might think that, that lower court judges could actually avoid that pitfall, right? And could, could maybe be faithful to, to history to the extent that that's, that that's possible? Right. Well, I mean, it's an excellent question. And I think one of the hazards, uh, as Joseph and I have written in, uh, in a recent op-ed, is that you end up with this strange ratcheting effect where the analogy is pitched at a very high level of abstraction on um, gun rights empowering questions. So, for example, even in the uh, Bruin decision itself, Justice Thomas says that, you know, Many modern kinds of weapons are presumably fall within the ambit of what an arm, quote unquote, an arm is uh, under the Second Amendment. But then the you know lower courts uh, to get at a, a preconceived outcome end up uh, narrowing the kinds of regulation that are imposed simply because the kinds of weapons that we have in the 21st century are so much more powerful than the ones in the 18th century. So that you end up with this really capacious view of, for example, what arms are, but this really narrow view about what kind of regulations look like in modern regulation on you know, a modern weaponry. Um, how can lower courts sort of avoid that pitfall? I think it's really to be cognizant that the, you know, the levels of generality have to be comparable on both sides of the rights regulation equation, that you can't just look at, you know, the rights expanding analogy and then a restrictive um, regulatory environment um, for for analogs, that it really has to be commensurate on both sides of the rights regulation uh, equation. 
And, you know, Daryl mentioned our brief earlier. This was a central theme in our brief, which is that it is really tough, I mean, perilous to try to draw these analogies across time. It's not because there's a lack of historical examples of regulation. There are, you know, hundreds. I mean, the repository of historical gun laws that we host here at Duke has more than 1,600 examples of historical regulations. And that only goes up until 1934, and it's only a partial record. So there's plenty of history there. The hard part is the analogy. Um, and this is, I think, a, I think a real concern going forward. I mean, it, it is the central, as I see it, the central engine of the majority's purported test here, and it just is empty. Uh, there's not, a, there's not a theory here of what makes two things relevantly similar. And in order to analogize, that's exactly what you need. You need to know what are the what is the basis on which we're comparing here? You know, what is what does it mean to ask if a modern AR-15 is relevantly similar to a colonial era musket? Like what is it you're comparing between those two things? Or likewise with regulations. I mean, you, you can certainly say, and this is to Daryl's point about levels of generality, and it's true that the framers had uh, you know, a tradition of disarming groups of people they thought to be dangerous. You know, then Judge Barrett said that very clearly when she was on the second on the Seventh Circuit. To the degree that's true, I think that supports the constitutionality of modern laws that disarm different groups that we believe to be dangerous, whether that's domestic abusers or people subject to extreme risk laws. It, the principle should be the same. But the fact that one can state that so easily, I think, is a demonstration of just how unconstraining this test is. And so for lower courts to cash it out in a way that feels like legal reasoning, I think, is going to require way more articulation than the majority here gives us about what it is that makes a historical law similar or dissimilar to a, a modern one. And I'll just say uh, one point on that, which is when the court discusses what it means to do analogical reasoning, it gives as an example Heller's sensitive places doctrine, which we call it a doctrine, but Heller just said in a uh, in a line in a paragraph of laws that was not calling into question that uh, it was not calling into question laws prohibiting guns in sensitive places like schools and government buildings. So Bruin repeats that, and Bruin says uh, we we haven't found a whole bunch of historical regulations where of places where guns were prohibited legislative halls, courthouses, voting precincts, but we don't see any challenges to these laws. And so we can presume that it was settled as a matter of constitutional law that they were okay. And then it said, when we're looking to modern regulations on sensitive places, what courts should do is use analogies to these uh, to these established places to set out whether or not a particular new designation of a sensitive place would also be constitutional, but it didn't say what's the relevant metric to use for those new places. And, and in fact, I think can any sensitive place regulation today is going to be similarly justified to a sensitive place regulation in existence in 1791 or 1868, which is that guns were, were not seen as particularly useful or that they would be actually harmful in those places. And the burden would be the same. It's a place where somebody can't carry guns. And if that's all that the opinion says to use analogical reasoning to do, it's hard to see how that's going to be determinant enough for courts to assess any kind of uh, modern restriction on places where guns can be carried. As we've talked about a little bit already, Bruin represents a, a seismic shift, really, in in the Supreme Court's approach to Second Amendment issues. And you know, in terms of a sort of practical on the ground response from regulators and and state governments, what do you see in the coming months and years as being the major issues there? 
I think the first thing we're going to see is states that had these laws that looked like New York's, what are often called the May issue laws, essentially um, altering their their frameworks to fit under what are generally called the shall issue regime. So the, the basic breakdown here is that it, it, it's typically described um, that there are three categories with regard to licensing regimes for concealed carry of handguns in public places. They fall into May issue, shall issue, and permitless carry regimes. May issue regimes are like the ones that uh, that New York had, at least until, until, uh, until Thursday morning. Um, where you have to show good cause or proper cause or some um, reason uh, for a licensing official um, to, to to issue to issue a permit, something above and beyond the normal interest in uh, in self defense. Shall issue regimes are thought to be more objective criterion, so that if you satisfy the basic criterion uh, in the statute, then the then licensing authority will give you a permit automatically. And then the permitless carry regimes are exactly what they sound like. You don't need a permit; you can just carry your gun in public. So what the court has done in Bruin is call the first of those categories into question, and that includes a lot of big states. Um, it's California, uh, it's New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland, Hawaii, Delaware, depending on how you how you classify it, um, Washington, D.C. Those states are going to need to pull themselves under the shall issue umbrella because the court did specifically say, and the concurring opinion from J- Justice Kavanaugh and Chief Justice Roberts uh, emphasized that shall issue regimes are okay. Now, the reason I think that's going to be interesting is that a lot of those shall issue regimes actually do preserve some discretion in the licensing authority to deny a permit to a person, for example, who is thought to be dangerous or who lacks good moral character. So I think we're going to see a lot more pressure, I guess, on those on those those um, specific requirements in the shall issue states. And I think that's probably where there's a lot more room for uh, for, for some sort of regulatory innovation. And I think I add another thing, which is um, you know one potential avenue uh, of making the may issue laws a little more like shall issue uh, will be like the objective metric of training. So uh, some states uh, require training, live fire training, for example, with uh, a firearm before you can obtain a license uh, to carry it. Uh, And I think and fully expect that um, many of these may issue states will use training as an objective metric and and then we'll find out about what the court thinks about what is the minimal level of training. It's it's worthwhile to note that some states through their own legislation have completely eliminated uh, any kind of permitting for concealed carry and so you end up with this uh, what I think is a very strange scenario where you have private citizens empowered and capable of inflicting lethal force on other people who are less able, less uh, understanding of how to use their weapon than our trained police officers. And that feels like an incredibly unstable uh, situation. Right. So in addition to legislative responses that are specifically about licensing laws, I think we're likely to see uh, legislatures who want to more strictly regulate guns turning to sensitive places doctrine, which the court in Bruin said is permissible. And so we are likely to see states designating other places as sensitive and perhaps even making legislative findings about what's going on in those places or perhaps historical analogies to those types of places. But uh, there's almost no doubt that those places um, are going to be open to challenge based on the, uh, the, the ruling. 
Right. And so as you as you just noted, Jake, you know, the court devotes a couple of pages to discussing the sensitive places doctrine. It doesn't really give a ton of guidance, but does sort of say that, you know, in, in general laws on prohibiting gun possession in schools, government buildings, things like that would still be constitutional under its approach. Other than sensitive places, you know, what other types of Second Amendment challenges do you see sort of coming up uh, in the federal court system in the coming years? And, and how do you expect those to play out? Right. So we generally think of at least a couple of different categories of firearms regulation. There's the WHO regulations, the regulations that prohibit certain classes of people from possessing arms. There are the WHAT regulations that regulate what type of arms people can possess. And there are the WHERE regulations that regulate where you can carry guns, um, either sensitive places or public carry generally. So the court resolved a set of questions about the WHERE. Um, it hasn't addressed the WHAT questions, what arms people can have or the who questions who falls into the meaning of the people that can uh, that have presumptive rights and who can be restricted from possessing arms. The court does not seem to be overly interested in the who questions. It's had a number of cert petitions in recent years. It has dismissed them all. It has even had a number of cert petitions on this question while Bruin was pending. It did not hold those petitions, but instead dismissed them. What it has held on to, which I think it might be a next wave of litigation, is what questions. So it has held on to cases challenging state assault weapons bans and bans on high capacity magazines. Uh, those are, are probably ripe for a next set of challenges in addition to the challenges that we're going to see cropping up from increased de designation of sensitive places or increased licensing requirements in response to the decision. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I and I think going back to the, sort of the earlier conversation that, you know, at that point, given the new world with Bruin, it'll go to the questions that uh, Joseph, you know, quite trenchantly asked, which is, well, how in what way is, you know, a large capacity magazine relevantly like some kind of, you know, historical arm or how is a, a regulation on uh, dangerous and unusual weapons that existed in the 18th century similar to, you know, a regulation on a, a dangerous and unusual weapon today? I really don't think uh, as a, a, a matter of sort of doctrine that the you know plain text meaning that uh, the majority purports to advance here really can work with the question of arms because if arms just means weapons, there's lots of very small portable weapons that are um, catastrophically lethal, uh, you know, magnitudes at times lethal, more lethal than anything that would have existed in uh, the 18th century. I'm thinking of like weaponized anthrax or you know uh, chemical weapons. Yeah, you can carry them. Yes, they're arms, but I have no doubt that there is no court in America that will say these are presumptively protected arms, and then you have to find some historical regulation to, you know, prohibitions on owning chemical weapons. Yeah, on that point, I just have to plug a great new paper that Daryl recently published with Jennifer Tucker, uh, an historian at, at Wesleyan, sort of uh, uh, trying to really get arms around what it would take to compare across time the lethality of different kinds of weapons. It's, it's a surprisingly tricky problem, but you guys had a, had a really fantastic solution to it in the paper. I guess I would just add that those problems of historical analogy, and Daryl, you've pointed this out elsewhere, they arise even for sensitive places. Um, you know, think about airplanes, think about daycare centers, think about the, the rule by which the Secret Service declares certain zones to be gun-free when the president uh, is speaking, as when Donald Trump or, you know, or former president or presidential candidate even is speaking, for example, at the NRA convention. None of those existed in 1791, um, but I, I'd be stunned if a, if, a, if a court were to strike any of them down. And so I think that's where we're going to see just a ton of play in the joints on the, on the analogy thing, right? 
Uh, totally. And I also think one really interesting thing about this is that it might actually affect in a weird way how legislatures and regulators actually paper the record. It used to be you would get, you know, evidence that this is, you know, this is how many times this kind of weapon is used in crime or this is how lethal it is, you know, in a mass shooting incident or or whatever. Now, I imagine that it will be a both and situation. I don't think that that evidence won't be put forward, but now it's going to have to be housed or at least articulated as, and this kind of looks like this regulation that our historians have, you know, testified uh, that existed in the, the 19th century, which will be an unusual in a uh, way, I think, of how city councils sort of do their business. Well, I mean, since you invoked legislatures, it's worth noting that 12 hours after this opinion came out, the Senate passed what uh, has, has now been signed into law is the, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which is the first major federal gun regulation in nearly 30 years. It was really a whiplash day for gun rights and regulation. And to go back to your question, Andrew, about you know what kinds of Second Amendment challenges can we expect to see? I think one immediate question a lot of people had was, well, what about this new federal law? Uh, how does it look when laid next to this Supreme Court decision? You know, and my immediate take on that is there's certainly going to be litigation. The vast majority of the stuff in the act really just doesn't give any traction to Second Amendment claims. This is like funding for community violence intervention programs and mental health and school safety. There's just not really any it's hard to even imagine what a, what a claim would look like under the Second Amendment with regard to those. Part of the act, though, is provides support for and incentives for states that have adopted or uh, considering adopting or considering expanding what are known as extreme risk laws, um, sometimes called red flag laws, which allow a judge to order the temporary sequestration or taking away of a firearm from a person who presents a risk of danger to, to themselves or others. And there, I think we might see some Second Amendment litigation. Thus far, as Jake and I have written, these laws have, have withstood every constitutional challenge, under, whether it's due process or Second Amendment. I think now the reasoning is going to have to shift to a much more historical, analogical uh, approach, as, ta as taking us back to where we started, to say that these laws are a way of defining a group of people who are at least temporarily dangerous. And as then Judge Barrett told us, uh, history and common sense are in accord that gun laws allow that. Just one more thing on that legislation, which is it also closes what's been called the boyfriend loophole. And there's been talk about challenges to those laws. And it underscores, uh, for me at least, the trouble with historical analogies in this space, because uh, level of generality is going to do all the work. If you are looking for a historical analogy to a law that disarms domestic abusers, you are absolutely not going to find it, uh, primarily because that was not criminalized conduct at the founding. And so, of course, no one's arms could be taken away for engaging in that conduct. If you abstract all the way out to whatever legislatures thought were dangerous, then there's, of course, much more government leeway. And it's really going to be hard for any kind of advocate to convince a particular judge of what level of generality they should view the question at. All right. Well, that's all the time that we have for today, but this has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much, uh, Joseph, Daryl, and Jake for joining me today on the Duke Law Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the Center for Firearms Law or peruse our coverage of the Bruin decision and fallout from that decision, please visit firearmslaw.duke.edu or follow us on Twitter at Duke Firearms Law. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to the Duke Law Podcast today. Until next time.